You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined on Blogging Heads TV. I'm your host, Arya Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is Miles Klee. Miles, could you introduce yourself? Hi, uh, I'm a writer for Mel Magazine, which is uh, a men's website that is sort of about uh, the changing ideals and notions of masculinity in the 21st century. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. You are the second guest to appear on this show who graduated from Columbia High School, which is also where I graduated from. Um, and we knew Go each other. <laughs> exactly. Uh, we knew each other a little bit, um, in high school. Um, uh, but I found you on Twitter and the name was familiar to me and it was a funny guy. I was like, where do I, this Klee? Like, how do I know a Klee? And then I saw an old copy of the, um, Columbia High School literary magazine, The Guild Script, and there was Miles Clean, and I was like, oh, this, 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 I went to high school with this guy. Um, so thank you again for coming on. So the, the piece of yours that I most wanted to, to discuss is about, uh, the TV show Rick and Morty. The headline is Rick and Morty and the Rise of the I'm a Piece of Shit Defense. Um, so can you talk about the piece and also explain what Rick and Morty is for people who have never seen it? Sure. So, uh, Rick and Morty is, a kind of dark, gonzo sci-fi cartoon for adults uh, that airs on Adult Swim and Cartoon Network, which is sort of their after-dark programming. Um, you know, it could be very uh, crude, it can be really silly, but at, um, at its heart, it is about not just the kind of uh, sci-fi tropes we love, um, like multiverses and time travel and all that. Um, it is about the sort of self-destructive personality of the mad scientist Rick who is at the center uh, of all the kind of catastrophes uh, on the show so Rick kind of um, is too smart for his own good uh, he's constantly basically seeking to alleviate his boredom and to dive into like the very pit of the abyss that is you know his depression and self-loathing and all that um, and as a result, he usually drags his family, including his nephew, Morty, down with him. Um, so they're all kind of uh, casualties in his sort of emotional reckoning. Um, so I, the fan base for this show is interesting because <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that's the most charitable way to put it. Yeah. Um, I, I like the show myself. Uh, a lot of fans like me, I think, have said something along the lines of, I love this show, but I hate the other fans. Uh, it's one of those fan bases where uh, they're kind of like weird purity tests. Uh, some some groups don't like some other subsets of the fan base. Uh, some of the really toxic fans seem to believe things like uh, they're very smart because they enjoy the show, or you have to have a high IQ to enjoy the show. That's sort of a meme about the show. Um, and these are also the same people who, for example rided at uh, certain McDonald's locations, what had happened was uh, McDonald's brought back a limited edition Szechuan dipping sauce uh, because there was a reference to it on the show. Uh, the fans loved this so much that they just uh, kind of demanded that it come back. Oh, Sorry. <laughs> and... Um, it just, you know, they it just spiraled out of control from there. So um, yeah, so the we'll include a link to the craziest video of this. Um, yeah, this is kind of when like the larger 
internet world became aware of the Rick and Morty fans as like this specific episode. And so like McDonald's is like, there's going to be a limited amount of Szechuan dipping sauce and there'll be like a free poster for Rick and Morty fans. And then people lined up and the McDonald's didn't do a very good job in terms of distributing things <laughs> equitably and people didn't get their sauce. And then there's this one video that went super viral of a, a young man, um, uh, jumping up on the counter at McDonald's and yelling and then getting down and doing like the thing that, um, that like, uh, Curly from, uh, Three Stooges would do where like he circles around on the floor. Homer Simpson does it too at one point and, <laughs> and, you know, like spinning around on the floor and then he like runs out and yeah, and, p- and people were like, who, who the hell are these people? <laughs> why, why are they going so crazy about, uh, you know, like a flavored ketchup packet? Mm-hmm. Which uh, apparently is not even very good. I've heard it's pretty overrated. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, yeah, uh, clearly they feel very strongly about the show, um, and they show that in a variety of ways. Um, And one sort of interesting way in which the attitudes of the show bleed into real life is um, in kind of Rick's personal philosophy. So... He's sort of a nihilist. Uh, he, he believes that, you know, nothing really happens for a reason. You should just get drunk and have uh, sex with aliens and do like, you know, do whatever feels good and is destructive. And, you're, you know, we're all ultimately dying. Um, and because he's, you know, in the world of the show, he's like a, a genius and brilliant, uh, the smartest person who ever lived. That kind of resonates with a certain maybe uh, on Reddit too much atheist guy who kind of thinks he's figured out the world at age 19 or so um, and thinks that their kind of cynicism is uh, or elevates them above, you know, normal humanity. Um, And I saw kind of a comparison point between that and what, uh, uh, what it sounds like a lot of dudes do in relationships which is they kind of embrace their shitty side. Um, and when they're confronted for that, they're kind of just like, uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge piece of shit. Um, you know, you deserve better than me. I'm not going to try to change. So you're just going to have to deal, you're going to have to fuck off or deal with it. Um, and that's, uh, that's not a good thing to do. I think the real message of the show is that you do have to try to change or want to change. Um, it's not enough to just be self-aware. Um, I, and I, I noted that I think Bojack Horseman does this similar thing, but a little better. Um, it's more cognizant of the need to improve. Um, and Dan Harmon, one of the co-creators of Rick and Morty is kind of on the record as, you know, working through some of these issues himself. Um, and so Rick, kind of began as a manifestation of some of those self-loathing and destructive tendencies. And I think um, best case scenario, the show going forward will start to reckon a little bit more with, uh, you know, how that's not a sustainable thing. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting threads here. Um, so one is that you didn't mention this in the article, but what it made me think of was this piece that Emily Nussbaum wrote a couple of years ago about the bad fans, and mm-hmm. she tied it specific, uh, specifically to Breaking Bad, and there there was this subset of the online fandom who were convinced that Walter White wasn't the villain of the show, that he was really <laughs> the hero, and the yeah. wife Skyler was the true villain by trying to prevent him from, you know, saving saving the family. 
and uh, there's you know a lot of TV shows have featured anti-heroes in the like golden age of TV, and uh, it's a question of how much we're supposed to identify with them. When do we stop identifying with them? Um, yeah, and then the creators usually have to be sort of in dialogue with the fans. Uh, you know, when The Sopranos got to the point where everyone was sort of on Tony's side or really identified with him, I think like season four and five, David Chase just made sure to make Tony completely irredeemable in like every episode. He became the monster he always was, essentially, but that people weren't acknowledging it. Um, so he kind of started to rub your nose in a, a little, and it made made it kind of a nastier show. But I, his point seemed to be like, no, you're not, <laughs> you're not supposed to be on this guy's side. You know, it's a compelling story, but he is not the good guy. Yeah. Um, does so I, I um. I've watched a couple episodes of the show in, in preparation for this. I, I never got into it. I thought it was okay. I, it didn't make me want to keep on watching it. Um, but I guess one question I have is if you watch more is does, do the characters change? Like does, do they ever learn yeah. anything? Is there any evolution? Most cartoons exist in this kind of ever present now and everything kind of resets at the end of the episode. Bojack Horseman is a, is very, very different from that and isn't unusual for a cartoon that actually has like a through line and character evolution and characters who die and characters that change. Um, does, does, yeah. does do Rick and or Morty ever, ever learn a lesson? <laughs> yeah. So there's, I would say there's a, there's a different emotional resonance between the seasons. Um, it does get to a point where Rick starts to grapple with the idea that he's taking Morty for granted, that he takes his family for granted. And then there are other kind of like um, structural changes to it. So like uh, the mom and dad split up, for example. Um, so it has kind of allowed uh, sort of the real life and the quotidian stuff to um, start to creep in amongst like the kind of high octane sci-fi concepts um, which has been good to see, and it's definitely definitely more interesting that way. Um, I mean, part of the fun of the show is, like, seeing certain very average things, you know, Morty wishing he could, like, talk to the popular girl at school, have to exist alongside Rick showing up and being like, there's no time for that, we have to go on, like, an insanely dangerous space mission. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so that's fun. Um, so one of the episodes I did watch was the one where, um, Rick uh, creates a device to make the dog a little bit smarter because the dog is peeing inside. So they make the dog smart enough to like open the door and go outside. But then the dog figures out he can make himself even smarter by putting extra batteries in this like, you know, helmet that he's wearing. So he does that and becomes super smart. And then he builds like an exo suit for himself and starts to take and becomes like an evil genius and starts to take over the the planet. So what it made me think of was, you know, in this show, so pretty much Rick is the only smart uh, character. The uh, Morty, the grandson is is like a moron. And then, so he's like kind of an evil genius, although whether he's good or evil is hard to say, but then the dog becomes smart and the dog becomes an evil genius. So (laughs) does this theme of like, Becoming smart means you're gonna do horrible things. Does that like other yeah. other instances of that, and, or just it's just a, like a weird, uh, a weird thing supposed, to put in there? It, it, it's supposed to be like a burden too, right? Like at the end of that episode, I think what ends up happening is that the dog becomes so brilliant that it is treating Morty like his pet, and 
uh, <laughs> at the end, he, yeah, he's in like a vet situation where, where they're like, oh, I want to know and if we're going to be able to keep him alive. It's going to cost a fortune. It's going to be, and the, and the dog is like, whatever it takes, you know, <laughs> right. which is sort of how we feel about our pets. And it's like, it is this problem of like, that comes with over intellectualizing an animal and like anthropomorphizing them and stuff. Um, so yeah, that is like, that is definitely a theme of the show. And yeah, I don't, I don't know that it's an argument that intelligence in itself is a bad thing. I think it's that intelligence is supposed to be dangerous. Mm-hmm. Uh, and especially in Rick's case, you know, he's not using it for good. Uh, so there's the thought that he could be doing something altruistic with it, but doesn't. Um, in the case of the dog, it's interesting because I think he resists that idea you know, it's like the, I think the dad is is kind of begging him to just whip up a device uh, that'll make his life slightly easier. And Rick kind of warns about the ramifications of that. He's like, you know, there's not uh, there's not a clean fix for that, and you can kind of overcomplicate your life uh, by thinking you can outsmart it. Um. So part of your article was that the uh, the show hasn't been renewed yet, and fans. There were some people <laughs> who were angry at Dan Harmon for not like getting on it. And I mean, it just, that's just, a, and like insulting him and calling him like an alcoholic. And, um, that's just a weird dynamic between like there, there's people out there who love the show, but hate the, hate the creator. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, do, has the show been renewed or is it still on the bubble? And like, so, do you see the yeah. fandom changing at all? Like, are they moving towards a better place or a worse place? So it's, Almost, you know, it's like a 99% lock that they'll bring the show back. All it is is that Adult Swim hasn't ordered the new season yet, uh, which is kind of typical. Like, they're not necessarily going to order it right away. The reason Dan Harmon and the whole team isn't doing anything is because the order doesn't exist. So they're not going to create the show if there's if it's not going to air. That'll probably happen. It's a show that's like, uh, taken pretty long breaks before. I think between seasons two and three was like 18 months or something, which is kind of long. And I think the animation and the writing are both a little bit more labor intensive than a lot of the other stuff mm-hmm. uh, on that channel or other cartoons. So it's not surprising at all that that's happening and it will probably come back. It's just, it's purely a measure of like how toxic some of these bros are that they think that one co-creator of this show that takes hundreds of people to write and animate uh, is solely responsible for this holdup, like as though he's sitting there with like writer's block and that's the only reason <laughs> the show doesn't exist. It, it, it's funny cause it's just shows a total ignorance about how TV production works mm-hmm. at any level. Um, and they don't care, you know, again, they're, they're embracing being pieces of shit. That guy who called him like a lazy alcoholic, you know, he clearly sees himself as like some Rick figure. He's like, I'm going to tell it how it is and be a complete dick. Um, and yeah, I don't care that this guy is the one who gave me something I care this passionately about. Now it's his job to continue giving me that. Um, and I think some, I think dudes treat people in their lives that way. They start to take them for granted or once someone does something that they like, they just want it endlessly forever. Um, one other, uh, interesting point you raised in the article is that, uh, Dan Harmon, the creator, 
uh, had a noteworthy interaction with the comedy writer uh, Megan Gans. Um, Gans was actually a guest on this show about uh, a year ago, and she was a writer for a community who uh, was sexually harassed by by Harmon, and she demanded a um, asked for a public <laughs> apology and got one in, in the form of a podcast, um, which. Is it was more than the kind of statement that like Matt Lauer put out of like you know I'm sorry if my yes. if I was misinterpreted like he he really was trying to seemingly trying to own up to, to his bad behavior and she um, graciously accepted the apology afterwards and I don't know it seems like Harmon you know is mining some vein of his own personality to um, create this uh, kind of hateful character or at least very dark character, but then maybe he's moved beyond that, that point in his, his own personal evolution. <laughs> and uh, maybe the fans haven't just aren't old enough yet or haven't reached that kind of breaking point that, that he did. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. He really did have kind of an exemplary apology that, uh, you haven't seen a ton of in the Me Too era. Uh, like you said, it's usually a lot of hedging. Uh, a lot of, I didn't know I was, <laughs> I didn't know I was doing it or something like that. Um, he doesn't, you know, rationalize it or explain it away. Uh, but at the same time, he's also not just wallowing in, um, having been that person. Uh, it is more of an attempt to own it, but, um, point towards the future, you know, without brushing under anything under the rug. Uh-huh. There's an episode of Rick and Morty where they try, where they go to like um like a spa on some other planet, and part one of the uh, one of the treatments they have is um something that like basically sucks out all your emotional toxins or whatever whatever makes you uh kind of a bad person, I guess. Uh, but when they do it. Uh, there's like so much that's shitty about Rick and Morty that uh, they are kind of they are kind of the toxins that are exiled, and then the only thing that's left that's like taken their place are basically these like mindless happy zombies ver- versions of themselves. So then they have then they have to go on this quest. They have to like reintegrate them. They the toxic Rick and Morty have to reintegrate themselves with uh, the kind of mindless happy drone versions in order to be complete again. Um, so again, you see that kind of thing where, uh, a lot of, a lot of the people apologizing or doing shitty apologies for sexual harassment say something like, uh, that wasn't the real me or, um, that I don't recognize the person who did those things or something like that. And I think a a good point that Rick and Morty has made is that, uh, those are not, you are not like a separable identity from yourself. Um, you'll always, he'll always be the person who harassed her. And I think that apology reflected on that. Um, but also made room for the possibility that he would improve. So, um, yeah, people are complicated. (laughs) Uh, would you recommend the show to someone who hasn't watched it? You know, I, I didn't like the first episode the first time I saw it. And then someone uh, was like, oh, you should really give it another chance. Uh, and then I went back to it again. And I 
some episodes I really, really do think are funny. Um, there may, there may be a little hit and miss depending on kind of the conceit or the concept of an episode. If you just want like a really goofy one, I think there's, I think they do two different episodes that are just about flipping around on like interdimensional cable channels. And it's basically just an episode long riff of like all the nonsense that, uh, other other aliens and species would watch in like other universes. <laughs> it's really funny, um, but yeah, the sh- the show's good. I, I can't I can't knock the show. Um, you know, just don't discuss it online if you can help it. <laughs> um, let's let's talk a little bit about another piece you wrote, um, which is titled Rebo- "Reboot, Revival, and Mashup Culture Has to End." Like geek nostalgia must die. And the, uh, for people who pay attention to online, they might be able to predict that the image associated with this is from Ready Player One, which came mm-hmm. out last weekend. I, I haven't seen it yet, um, although I actually do want to see it, unlike a lot of people who spent time on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you have any interest in seeing Ready Player One? No, I, I can't imagine. Well, I'm kind of like, I'm a little bit agnostic on Spielberg anyway. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> I looked at the Rotten Tomatoes score and it has, it has, I think in my mind, the worst possible score on that site, which is like 75%. Yeah. That, that to me is just indicative of like complete mediocrity. Um, <laughs> like I would rather go see a movie that's got like a 40% cause that seems like it would be fun. Uh, you know, it's just in that gray zone of like, who cares, man? Like that's, that's not fun. It's not interesting. Uh, you know, what I've read of the book is god awful. I read, so, I actually read the book. Yeah. Um, it's not, I wouldn't call it good. Um, <laughs> but it's also, it's also not as bad as people are making it out being. Yeah. It's, it's more, it's media, I mean, it's mediocre. There are parts that are fun. If you like references, then there's lots of references. <laughs> like, it's not well written, but, uh, it kind of keeps you going along. And, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, like, Spielberg, most Spielberg movies are good, and this one has like the DeLorean in it. So, <laughs> and also <laughs> I have Movie Pass, so I'm not going to actually oh, okay. be paying so that, for yeah. it. So, you can see anything on that. yeah, so yeah. that's why I, I do want to see it and do plan on seeing it. But let's get back to the piece uh, yeah. you wrote. Um, it's sort of a yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, to your point about references, uh, the geek culture or the geek canon that that movie is about. You know, those kind of '80s. Uh, sci-fi and fantasy worlds. Um, the problem at this point is that those references or uh, an awareness or like a familiarity with those universes is kind of mistaken for a personality. Um, you can't, you can't really be like, uh, I love back to the future and that's, that's who I am. You know, like everyone loves back to the future, <laughs> I think. Um, and there is a mistaking too of all that material as somehow like niche or specified or like I'm a huge nerd because I like Star Wars. No, man, Star Wars is the most successful film franchise of all time. Like it's everyone sees it. Everyone enjoys it. It's not a specialized thing for you. Um, and so, but there's this weird uh, possessiveness in the geek world of like, Oh, that's mine. Or like Goonies is my thing. And I know it backwards and forwards. Um, it's not to say that there's a problem feeling strongly about your favorite entertainment. You should 
you should happily rewatch those movies or get get whatever you want out of them. But um, it has contributed to uh, the bottom line in Hollywood in a way where it's um, it's kind of just a reflex at this point to keep regurgitating that stuff because hey, if it's Indiana Jones, people are going to come see it. So um, I, for one, kind of, if I had a time machine, I think I might go stop Star Wars from happening. Because <laughs> <laughs> in my mind, it kind of ruins cinema. Um, I I would love to open the door to some other weird fantasy worlds, uh, maybe ones that don't cost $200 million and that aren't two and a half hours long. Um some of the most exciting stuff getting made today is, you know, pretty, it's always, it's always going to be the mold breaking stuff. So it's nice when something like get out kind of, or it follows or whatever kind of, uh, weird horror stuff breaks the mold. Um, I'd much rather see that than like, you know, nightmare on Elm street part 21, even though I love nightmare on Elm street and nobody, nobody's content to like let those things, exist on their own and uh the you know the marvel disney complex is is a really bad part of this because now everything has to be an interconnected universe um and i don't know i guess everyone's gonna have like one line in an infinity war because there's like 400 characters <laughs> and it's just kind of exhausting man and I, I i really believe that movies like that and star wars and they're just reflecting they're reflective of like America at permanent war. Like all those movies are just about how you're in a never ending war hmm. for all time. Mm-hmm. And that's, I, you know, I was never like a huge comic book person, but from what I remember in comics, it's like, you know, they had days off and stuff. Like <laughs> <laughs> they were, they were dealing with other things. I get that that's not always exciting in a movie, but you know, when I read Spider-Man, it was like, Ah, sometimes he was just having a bad day at high school or something. Like that was pretty, it's pretty funny. Um, so yeah, it's I just find it exhausting, man. Yeah, I think um, so. I was like a, uh, I think if I, if I was like twelve years old right now, I'd be like a pig and shit. You know, I'd be, I'd be so happy. Like all my favorite things are on the big screen, and because yeah. when I was a comic book nerd uh, in the mid nineties, like there were no, I mean, like Blade came out, which was a pretty good movie at the time, but and then X Men came out kind of towards the end of my comic book reading uh, existence. Uh, but now everything, you know, it's just like all all this stuff from our childhood is now like the cash cows and, you know, like uh, Black Panther came out recently and most people like that, but like, that's a character that was invented in 1965 and um, it was, it was different and a lot more interesting than uh, the majority of comic book movies. But yeah, it was still not something new Um, at the same time. Like, you know, I'm a big believer in the, like everything is a remix idea that there's no, mm-hmm. there are no original stories or characters or ideas. It's just everything is a, a small change on something that came before it. Um, so, you know, Star Wars itself is super derivative of like Hollywood Westerns and Kurosawa movies. And the fact that like it's now been iterated so many times is, is weird, but like that's like culture only happens through digesting previous stuff and like coming up with something slightly new, but it'll never be 
you know, pure, pure and yeah, yeah. new well, and holy. It's almost, it's almost like we've given up on redisguising it. We're like, uh, well, if it's going to be, you know, just the same motifs every time, then let's just slap the franchise label on it and not even bother to <laughs> do the remixing. Like, where's the remix? <laughs> right, and um, and Ready Player One like, seems like the apotheosis of this, like, um, like I'm sure... Like, no one in there is going to be shocked by any, like, plot point in Ready Player One. Like, you know, just seeing the, the trailer tells you basically the entire plot, and, like, I'm pretty sure the, the good guys are going to try and <laughs> over the bad guys in the end. Um, and then there I even saw people who were upset about, uh, you know, they have, they have people, they have characters like the Iron Giant in there, and people who were pointing out that the original movie, the Iron Giant, is, like, a super pacifist uh, Cold yeah, War story, yeah. and they're like, oh, the... but now, guess what? The Iron Giant's going to be in there, like, punching people. <laughs> <laughs> like, so, yeah, so not only are they kind of like, uh, hey, remember all those movies that were better than this one? Like, that's a, we- that's a weird thing to do in the first place. There's, like, an old Mystery Science Theater joke about that, because they're watching a bad movie where one of the characters is watching Casablanca, and they're like, you know, you should never put Casablanca in the middle of your terrible movie. Yeah, really I, just... that's actually something my my wife was a big MST3PA fan back in the day, and that's actually something she mentions whenever we see a movie or TV show where they're watching a better movie or TV show. That, that specific <laughs> line, just like, yeah, you're making a big mistake. Um, yeah, well, you know, I'm gonna I am gonna see Ready Player One. I will report back to the Blogging Hands fans whether yeah, whether um, it's worth two hours of your time. Um, why don't we move on to uh, this piece that you wrote, um, which is which is kind of on a similar vein. Um, now that normies have invaded nerd culture, how do we define a nerd? Uh, can you talk a little yeah. bit about that? Uh, yeah, so this this was actually coming off another thing about um, uh, Michael B. Jordan and Kim Kardashian and maybe maybe someone else kind of came out as like anime fans. I mean, Michael B. Jordan had always been open about it, but people had started paying more attention to it and thought it was funny. Um, and that led me to thinking again about uh, all all those 80s and Spielberg uh, properties um, being super popular. Uh, and, yeah, I just no longer think that we can consider someone who uh, you know enjoys Stranger Things to be a nerd just like based on that alone, I think like maybe you could call it geek culture, but a nerd to me now is something different. Uh, it's sort of an aggressive and aggrieved personality. Um, they're probably, they're more likely to be on Twitter shouting at people that they're wrong about a movie or that, uh, you know, the lady Ghostbusters ruined their childhood or something. That's, that's, that's always like the resentment they have too, right? It's like they want more of the thing that they've always enjoyed, but when someone, you know, switches it up a little bit, uh, then they hate it. So I felt like the last star Wars had that quality where it was trolling, trolling the audience a little bit, Mm -hmm. uh, messing with expectations. And that is not something that the kind of nerds stood for. But everyone else, I think, who doesn't go into Star Wars being like, I want to see the same beat for beat, you know, I want to see the Empire Strikes Back with the same or different characters. Uh, I think everyone else walked out of that movie perfectly satisfied. Uh, and they're, they're not 
the nerds, they're the normies. It's like plenty of normies go see those movies. Um, so yeah, the, the nerd is just this guy who thinks that other people are enjoying things wrong. <laughs> um, and, and maybe watching, um, Rick and Morty and being angry about yes. it. I, yeah. There's, there's kind of a, yeah, you're kind of circling around a common theme here. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think it is, it is interesting and like, I don't know what a like 10 year old coming of age today who was like not into mainstream stuff, what kind of stuff would they be into? Like, I, I, it's, I guess it's stuff I've never heard of. Um, or maybe it's cause it, you know, it used to be like, you know, in the pre-internet era, there was a, like, corpus of knowledge you could only acquire through, like, diligent work. And, like, I, w- I was such a huge X-Men fan that I bought these kind of uh, things that these, like, editions that had, like, a like three-paragraph summary of every single X-Men issue, like, day back from the 1960s. And, so that, and, like, I read them so that I could have the full like backstory of all my favorite characters and that was like you know like a prized possession and i had one for like the transformers uh, comics too that like gave the character personalities for each one but it it was like this is what i know and other people can't know it but now every like a wiki for yeah that's exactly what i say there's there's a wiki for every fandom you know the knowledge is now um free for anyone who wants to gain it and then, like, what does, where does that leave the poor, aggrieved, <laughs> socially maladjusted 11-year-old? Well, what do they do? I have no idea. Yeah, and I think there's a leveling effect to, I mean, the feeling I get is that uh, the type of kids who were maybe once considered nerds and uh, like, Gen X or the millennial era are probably now, like, cool in school because <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's sort of... Um, I think with like smartphones and apps and like, you know, everyone is always talking about like what effect or what negative effect that's going to have on these kids. But I think it's kind of like homogenized, uh, sort of those vectors of geekiness. Like, because, you know, if you were, if you were like a tech geek in like 1989, that meant something totally different from just like, uh, uh, you know, designing an app on your phone or whatever they're doing, whatever the hell they're doing now. Um, and I think there's, there's a sense of more of a sense of like possibility that, you know, like Silicon Valley is like a hot thing. And like, uh, the, the kids who are like geeks now are assumed to be like the billionaires of tomorrow. So everyone wants to be nice to them probably. <laughs> right. This is a plot point in the 21 jump street remake, um, where, where, uh, Jonah Hill and Channing Tatum go back to school and Channing Tatum is ready to like, you know, pretend to bite. He wants to pretend to be a 17 year old by like beating up on a nerd. But then all these people like come to the nerd's rescue and he, yeah. he has a line. It's like, the, the nerds are cool now. Can't believe it. Um, so yeah, maybe, maybe that's true. I don't know. Uh, well, we have seen how woke the teens are. Like the teens seem super progressive and it's like, yeah, I don't think that, uh, you know, whatever like revenge of the nerds you know nerds versus jocks thing like that seems that seems like it has no resonance whatsoever anymore again like you know i haven't been in high school since we were there together but um even then i don't think i was like i was never bullied maybe behind my back i don't know (laughs) 
Yeah, the the well, the era of like getting shoved inside a locker, I feel like kind of was past. But um, I did have some unpleasant interactions with some of our <laughs> fellow students that I can detail for you offline if you're so curious. Um, but yeah, and then I think maybe maybe video games have taken the place of kind of these other niche things, just because like obviously video games existed uh, when we were kids, but the like totally immersive aspect of like playing online against people for hours and hours on end that's that's something yeah. that you couldn't do well, but years ga- ago. gaming gaming is much more social than it ever was for us it's like uh you know i still think of it as like you know being alone in the attic uh <laughs> trying to beat one like first person shooter game or maybe being at my friend's house like watching him play a video game by himself right <laughs> and not really <laughs> interacting with him at all uh Whereas, yeah, now they're, you know, they're shouting obscenities to each other on their headsets or whatever. So I mean, that might be an improvement in some regard. Yeah, I don't, I don't know whether whether it's, it's better or not. Uh, but yeah, it definitely is more social. Like the maximum you could have was four people, at, you know, playing N64 or, or original PlayStation. And now you're, you're, you can be connected to thousands of people and have yeah, like there's, a much there's different experience. Huge communi- there's huge communities and like that was the whole, that was the whole revelation of the internet was that like you could be an isolated person in a, in a totally uh, rural area who feels like they're the only one who cares about whatever one specific geeky interest you have. And then of course on the internet, there's a million other people who love it. So even, even if you are, uh, sort of set apart in your own community, there's one out there for you. <laughs> um, let's talk about the the last piece I want to discuss today, which is all about um, Elaine Bennis from Seinfeld. Uh, how did all the guys Elaine dated on Seinfeld manage to screw it up? Um, what what made you want to write about, about Elaine? Uh, so I think I had seen a bunch of, well, I obviously rewatched Seinfeld to like a pathological degree, uh, you know, I'll catch the, I'll catch one or two reruns, um, on a weeknight. And, uh, I had seen a lot of pieces kind of like ranking Jerry's girlfriends or all the, you know, all the girlfriends that he and George and Kramer had. And I felt like, uh, we were missing sort of an interesting conversation about Elaine's dating style because she is, uh, probably, or she's, you know, she's easily the, the, most attractive person in the show uh and she should already be like married probably if it were like more realistic she's like a great catch it's like julia lee dreyfus is like a goddess right (laughs) um and her dating style is like sort of the more enlightened version of what uh the other characters are doing so she's sort of set apart in this other interesting way like you know jerry is kind of just Jerry and George are both kind of like the most attractive woman that will date them at any given time. That's kind of like all they're going for. And they'll even, you know, Jerry is like pretty cavalier about throwing the relationship away. Uh, whereas like Elaine really wants to like win the argument and keep the guy, you know? So even when she's starting an argument about like some totally silly thing, uh, you know, she dates the novelist who leaves a, leaves her a note about someone calling and saying they had the baby, uh, but he doesn't put an exclamation point on it. And so she's mad about that. Uh, Jerry is someone who could have, like, just been like, well, that's it. Uh, it's over. You know, if that were the sort of thing he cared about. But she is kind of, like, trying to make the case for using exclamation points. 
as if that's like the only thing she needs to change about this guy for everything to be perfect. Um, and so it's funny. She, she kind of goes for these professional dudes. She goes for like intelligent guys when she does date like a dumb hunk. She's sort of self-conscious about it and she knows and she feels a little guilty. Um, you know, George, George and Jerry, if they're dating someone kind of dull, but they're attractive, they don't really care. Um, and then she has this kind of timeless relationship. I think the funniest, uh, ongoing relationship in the show is with her and David Putty, mm-hmm. um, who's of course the kind of, uh, monotone car mechanic turned salesman. Uh, and they're kind of all wrong for each other, but, uh, he gives her like this emotional baseline. That's very funny. Uh, they can, they're on and off and they're always getting back together. Uh, and there's even an episode where Jerry bets her that she'll go back to putty and they keep going double or nothing and she (laughs) keeps losing. (laughs) And it's a whole, it's a whole great montage of her just slapping money on the table Every time she goes back to him. Um, <laughs> and there's one where he's smoking a cigar and, like, yeah. <laughs> going through the, the bills, yeah. Yeah, so, like, the those relationships are, I think, so much better written because they're not, they're not like, a vehicle for the gags. Like, they actually are thinking about how she's dating. Um, and then, you know, I love when she does have, like, the principled moments of, like, uh she can't, she can't keep it to herself that she doesn't like the English patient. She has to like speak her truth. You know, George or Jerry would have just lied and been like, <laughs> uh, yeah, great movie or whatever. Um, but she, yeah, she, she has to be herself. And, uh, yeah, I just love Elaine. So I think she's the best character on the show. And then as a result, the, the relationships are just much more interesting. Yeah. She's, she's the most human character, um, by far. Um, you know, the, every like sitcom character is kind of a exaggeration of reality, but she does, yeah, her issues seem more real and, uh, her personality and reactions seem more real. Um, you know, I have, since we, you mentioned David Putty, I have to share that, um, a couple weeks ago I saw a group of three young guys and two of them were wearing the eight ball jacket. <laughs> not, not exactly match, not exactly matching. I don't know if they were in a gang or what, but like, I, I've never seen this in real life, and then I saw two, two together. Wow, um, side by side. Yeah. So I, my my wife and I just recently started rewatching um, Seinfeld on Hulu. We're only about like ten episodes in, but she was commenting on how the like battle of the sexes aspect of it seems very very dated, um, mm-hmm. and it's all at all, pretty much every. Um, of the of the parts where uh, Seinfeld is doing stand up in those first couple episodes is him doing some like men are like this women like this mm-hmm. kind of not super original um, comedic observation. Um, do you have any thoughts about how how that the men versus women aspect of the show is portrayed? Yeah, uh, I think like you're saying that especially that stand up doesn't really hold up, and there are huge swaths of the show that are problematic for any number of reasons by uh, kind of 2018 standards, which has given rise to stuff like uh, there's a group I wrote about um, on Facebook. That's like Seinfeld shit posting. Um, but there's also one that's uh, politically correct Seinfeld. Uh, and they'll kind of like edit scenes to make like memes where 
you know, some of those aspects are sort of edited out or dealt with forcefully, <laughs> uh, which is funny. But the I think what actually happens plot wise uh, usually serves as a nice counterpoint to what what Jerry is doing in the stand up. Like the stand up is like this radically simplified thing that he's doing for a punchline. And then the complexities and like little quirks of what's actually going on kind of complicate his ideas. So like, I think, you know, the real Seinfeld is a, a pretty funny stand up. You'd have to say, <laughs> sure. um, but he's sort of portrayed as not very good in the show. Uh, I don't know. That might be, that might be a controversial take, but it's like, I never thought he was supposed to be great. And then most of the time, a lot of the episodes revolve around him, like, bombing on the Jay Leno show or whatever. And it's like, he's always screwing up, like, his big chance, like, which makes it all the funnier that he has, like, an okay apartment on the west side. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, his, the, the stand-up that he, the character performs is from Seinfeld's actual stand-up. Yeah. Um, so I don't think, I think that's, like, as good as he could do it, and yeah, I think he's like one of the all-time great stand-ups, but yeah, in the in the reality of the show, he's never super successful, um, he's always like a working comic, they make the the sitcom pilot Jerry, and it it's not a success, and yeah, they kind of... Oh, that, that, that show is supposed to be bad, for sure, like, yes. <laughs> in the world. Um, yeah, no, the, the stand-up is, the stand-up is what it is, but it's like, when I think about, uh, like the actual stand-up of his I've heard like outside the show the things I think of the bits that I love are are things that they could never have shoehorned in as like uh the cold open of of a sitcom so they're like they're sort of necessarily bland and they're just like they're I think they're the most like filler type material they could do Mm -hmm. but I don't know that maybe that's giving it all too much credit it definitely, definitely, there are many moments like uh, throughout any season where you're going to cringe. I think early on, especially they, because they're also wrestling with the idea. Well, the network wants Elaine and Jerry to be together, uh, and so they're kind of doing meta episodes about that, or like only like three episodes in. So it's very confusing. Um, so I think what you see, especially early on, is like a push and pull between like uh, probably some you know, non-Larry David, uh, Jerry Seinfeld, people wanted more of a men versus women aspect to the show. Uh, but you see them start to resist that and then it becomes, you know, gender, I think, becomes less important as it goes um, till you get to the point where it's like Elaine losing first in the contest or something like that, uh, which is very funny. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, so go back and rewatch Seinfeld. I will continue to do so. Um, and yeah, the, um, the episode about the, uh, with the pony remark, um, was the last yeah. one we watched, which is just like, I think I it's think their the, first, I think like, the first, first stone cold classic. Yeah, the first great episode. It's yeah. only like episode six or seven. Yeah. And that's, uh, it's just like imprinted in my memory of that woman <laughs> saying, I had a pony. Um, <laughs> Okay, I, um, Miles. Thanks for thanks so much for uh, taking the time to talk to us. Where, if people want to see more of your work, where can they look? Uh, they can look me up at Mel Magazine, M E L Magazine, um, and I have a couple books. Uh, one is called Ivy Land. One is True False. Those are that's a novel and a short story collection, and those are uh, available from O R Books. 
which is a fun little publisher. And yeah, I'm on I'm on Twitter, but if you follow me there, you'll probably regret it because it's uh, it gets a little weird. <laughs> um, and that's uh, just at Miles Clee, right? Yeah. Um, cool. Uh, and I'm at uh, A-R-Y-E-H-C-W. Uh, you can subscribe to this show on iTunes. You can follow Blogging Heads on uh, our YouTube channel. Or you can just uh, watch it at bloggingheads.tv. Um, so thanks to all of our viewers and listeners. Thank you again, Miles. And we'll see you next time. Before you go, a quick message from the suits at Blogging Heads TV. Blogging Heads will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Blogging Heads programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.